This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can download or stream new episodes every Thursday. For automatic updates, all you need to do is subscribe. Now, this week, we're continuing our four-part mini-series on Hadrian's Wall, with episode two, which is dedicated to Halstead's Roman fort. Lying halfway along the wall near Hexham in Northumberland, Halsteads is Britain's most complete example of a Roman fort. It was built within 10 years of the wall's initial construction and for nearly three centuries was able to house 800 infantrymen. Joining us now to uncover some of the other impressive and enduring features of Halsteads Roman fort are our two guests for this podcast. I'm Paul Patterson and I'm a senior historian at English Heritage. And I'm Frances McIntosh, and I'm a collections curator for Hadrian's Wall in the North East. We've begun by reeling off Paul some impressive facts about Housesteads, its longevity as a working fort, the sheer number of men stationed here, and its prominent position around halfway along Hadrian's Wall. Its location is also pretty geographically impressive, isn't it? Yes, indeed it is. In fact, when I was considering this, I remembered the first time I went to Housesteads because I'm from Durham, not too far away. And I was in my early teens, and I was a little bit interested in the Romans, and my father took me up there. And as soon as I glimpsed this place, coming out from the car park, where the the initial visitor centre is, and you look across this valley, and you see it on the hill beyond, I was just awestruck. It It was amazing. And it's genuinely one of those places where I could almost feel the past, and it inspired me definitely to be inquisitive about Roman history and archaeology. It's an astonishing place. It is an impressive place, as you say. Um, I think one of the things that strikes anyone, if you're just looking it up on the internet and you're looking at pictures, is it sort of occupies this gradual slope and then this drop, which obviously gives it a very commanding position in the landscape. It's taking advantage of the natural geography with this sort of cliff face below the wall. But it's also on this slope, which gives it a bit of majesty as as it sort of had that effect on you when you were young. Well, absolutely. It still does today. I mean, it's quite a remote semi-upland location as well, although it's not far off a B road today, which is is in fact an 18th century military road that runs between Newcastle and Carlisle. And it's in the central section of Hadrian's Wall that, as you say, exploits this huge geological structure to its advantage. And this is something called the Great Wind Sill, which is a 295 million year old volcanic extrusion that was forced up through the landscape as magma in a a sort of cataclysmic episode way back in geological time. And eventually this magma solidified as a hard rock, which we know as dolerite. And this created a massive ridge of rock crossing the country from east to west with this steep and high cliff face on the north side. And it was along this face of the Great Windsill that the Romans sighted part of Hadrian's Wall in this central sector. So when you approach it today, you leave the car park and you come onto the lip of the valley at a place called Chapel Hill. The fort literally stares at you from across the other side, straddling the Great Windsill. And it's truly impressive. The other thing that's impressive about it is that After the Roman era, the area wasn't really used intensively and still remains a remote place today. 
so that the remains of the fort and its you know surrounding buildings are clear even from a distance so you get this amazing picture from afar and then of course you have this walk across the valley to climb the hill and all the while you can see this thing sitting on the hill above you and it kind of brings home to you the sheer skill of the roman ambition in building this place this impressive structure in such a place and actually when you walk to both sides as well of housesteads along the wall the wind sill itself and the sighting of the wall it's exhilarating it's really really inspiring and of course today we have the low-lying ruins but you can sort of imagine hopefully in your mind's eye if you're a visitor how tall the walls around would have been how tall would they have been well, they're still impressive today. You know, in some places, the fort wall is upwards of two metres high. So if you imagine it was probably between four and five metres high originally, it still remains quite impressive overall. And of course, the vast majority of the buildings inside it are still fairly well preserved too. Yes. Now, we know it as Housesteads, but what was the Roman name? We think the Roman name was Vercovicium which is believed to mean something like the place of the effective fighters. That's very loosely, very loosely translated. The only reason we know about this is from, I think it's just one, but Francis might correct me in a minute, one altar which has an inscription on it. It was dedicated, this altar, in the early 3rd century. And it actually has the first three letters of the name of Vercovicium actually inscribed upon it. And then much later in the Roman period, there is a very late Roman document dating to the end of the 4th century, which calls it Borcovicium. But I understand that the prefix Bor and Ver are interchangeable in original and medieval Latin. So we're pretty confident that it was called Vercovicium. How long was there a Roman garrison at Housteads or Vercovicium? Well, as far as we can tell, for the whole of the period from the AD 120s, when it's first constructed, to the very end of the 4th, perhaps into the early years of the 5th century, possibly even a little beyond. So in other words, for the entire service life of Hadrian's Wall, that's 270 years or so. We know this from the character and date of all sorts of archaeological finds that have been made over the years, but also because of these inscriptions and this late Roman document that I mentioned the Notitia Dignitatum, which lists Vercovicium, or in this case, Borcovicium, as a place where a particular Roman unit was stationed. So all in all, taking archaeology and surviving documentation, we're fairly sure that it was occupied for the whole of the Roman period from the AD 120s through to the early 5th century. Building upon that idea then, Francis, did the wall builders themselves leave any clues that tell us more about Housesteads? Yeah, they did. So if you go right to the top of Housesteads, the north end, you'll see the remains of a turret that had to be demolished because the decision for building the wall changed You know the features that were going to be included. So at one point, the fort wasn't going to be included. It was just going to be turrets and mile castles. So someone had started to build the turret before they decided they'd build Housesteads. So that's a, a something where you can kind of hear the Roman builders cursing, you know, the powers that be for changing their plans too late down the line. <laughs> but on a smaller scale, we also have something that we call centurial stones. And these are found all along Hadrian's Wall. And um, Hadrian's Wall was built by soldiers, by the legionary soldiers. And they marked the sections that they built. And in the 
Halsteads and surrounding sections, we've got quite a few. We have one of the century of Munatius Maximus or the century of Camius. So there's each century, so those 80 men marked a stone to show the section that they built, which is really quite nice because it shows it's partly, I think, pride in their work, but also it helps us to understand how the wall was constructed. And presumably for them, it's marking the fact that they built that section, you know, not the other century. At the actual finished site itself, how many men lived and worked in the fort? And where in the Roman Empire were they from, Paul? This is always a a matter of dispute because generally speaking, we only have fairly infrequent mentions or records of the units in garrison. And we rely on surviving inscriptions to tell us this. But fortunately for Housesteads, we think we know at least the initial answer. We have the buildings themselves and looking at the regular plan of the Roman fort, we think there are 10 barrack buildings, each of which was for a century of 80 men, which of course makes approximately 800 soldiers. Now, this is a fairly rare unit. More normally, you'll get units of 480 soldiers And exceptionally, you'll have larger units like this. Unfortunately, we have some inscriptions from Housesteads that record at least three of the units that were stationed at Housesteads. Unfortunately, most of them seem to be late second and third century. So, you know, there is a period outside our understanding where the garrison could have been different. But we're fairly confident that at least one unit, which was called the first cohort of Tungrians, which was an 800-strong auxiliary infantry unit. So one of these so-called support troops to the legions, but in fact, they were in many cases the main fighting troops of the Roman army. And certainly as Hadrian's Wall developed, they become the main garrison forces along the wall. So this unit, the first cohort of Tungrians, was originally raised in an area which we would now recognise as Belgium, uh, around a place called Tongre. Yeah. Okay. So sometime in the century following Julius Caesar's conquest of Gaul, which is, you know, in the mid first century BC, coming through to us in, in terms of when the unit was raised, probably in the mid first century BC. So in that period. And so they would have served in various places. But the important thing to register is that culturally, they were a people with both Germanic and Gallic influences. So this is the essence of these auxiliary units. When we talk about Romans from all over the place, and this particular unit was from what we now know as Belgium. But there are a couple of others that are mentioned inscriptions from Housesteads as well, also in the third century AD. And these are slightly unusual units in that they are not the standard cohorts and ally, which are the auxiliary infantry and cavalry. These are slightly unusual units that are raised from other peoples, sometimes inside, but sometimes outside the Roman Empire as well. And they serve in the army. And one of them was called the numerous, and I can pronounce this, it's quite difficult, Nordifridi. Nordifridi. Starts with an H, a silent H. And this we get from an altar inscription, whereby this unit was dedicating an altar to some of their goddesses and some of their gods. And this, we believe, was quite an an irregular unit. And Nordifridus is believed to be the commander of that particular unit. That was his name. So he was associated with this particular military unit. Uh, And then there's another one 
called the Cuneus Frisiorum. Now, these are Frisians, basically, a Germanic people from another region, not far away in a place called Twente in the eastern Netherlands. So one of them was an infantry unit and one of them was a cavalry unit. And we think these were smaller, perhaps 200 to 300 soldiers in each unit. What we don't know is whether they were here at different times or at the same time, at the same time as the Tungrians, whether it was a mixed garrison. We don't know any of that. But what we do know is that the fort could accommodate comfortably up to 800 soldiers. Now, that was a very long answer, but I think it's, it's essential to understand that units sometimes moved frequently and sometimes they were mixed with other units. Sometimes they stayed in garrison for a very long time. What we suspect in the case of the first cohort of Tungrians is that when it arrived at Housteads, it probably stayed there for much of the Roman period, until the very end, in fact, judged by the account that we have in this document, the Notitia Dignitatum. So if you had to sort of broadly paint the picture of Housteads over this occupation for around 270 years, you've got a, a mixture of, I guess we might call them sort of regiments, <laughs> Yes, in indeed. modern parlance, perhaps occupying the site individually or crisscrossing or sharing yes. the site? Well, the other thing that we know from the Vindolanda writing tablets, remember Vindolanda is fairly close to Housesteads and they found all these preserved tablets with writing on them, is that these include definitions of the strength of a particular garrison. And what they show is that the size of the garrison at Vindolanda varied because Sometimes detachments from the unit would be sent elsewhere for a particular purpose. Sometimes even individual soldiers were sent on detached duty. So even with a notional garrison of 800, you know, at times you might have only three or 400 in their base garrison, for instance, housesteads, and the rest could be temporarily or semi-permanently on duty elsewhere. But the, the other thing to note is it's, I think it's important to remember that housesteads is not just a fort. It's a frontier town because there are lots and lots of buildings outside it. So in terms of the total number of people that would have lived at Housesteads in the Roman period, it could have been double that. It could have been 1,600 or so, perhaps even a few more. It's very difficult for us to estimate that. But suffice to say is that it's a, a substantial and thriving community of soldiers and civilians forming a frontier town. So how's the fort organised if you were taking a sort of bird's eye view of the actual site? Well, in common with most Roman forts of this date, and we're talking about initially the Hadrianic period when it's first built, it was laid out to a pretty organised and regular plan with a series of buildings that you would expect to find at most Roman forts across the empire. Although in this case, we have at least one less commonly identified building that I think Francis is going to say a bit more about. But when you look at the fort in plan, it has the shape of a playing card. Its stone walls define a rectangular area with rounded corners. Four gates, one in each wall, one in the east and the west in the centre of those walls, and in the north and south walls offset to the east. And all of these gates are very substantial structures with double entrances surmounted by towered gatehouses, very impressive and then studded along the walls, there are interval and corner towers, which are also pretty tall and looking to the exterior. So then if you think of the internal division of this playing card into three zones, 
by metalled roads which separate them, and buildings laid out in each zone to a rectilinear grid, each building also separated from its neighbours by metal streets, then you get a picture of a very regimented setup. The central zone contained a headquarters building, a large courtyard house for the commanding officer, a hospital and granaries. And then the eastern and western zones contained primarily barracks, workshops, latrines, more service buildings. And then finally, another street went right around the interior next to the fort wall and the earth rampart behind it. And against that rampart, in this case, is the famous latrine building that we have at Housesteads, and let into it and into the the rampart itself and some of the towers, you would find ovens where the soldiers would have cooked their food. Finally, in typical Roman fashion, there was a clever network of stone conduits and drains and cisterns whereby water, probably largely derived in this case from rainwater, was stored and distributed both for consumption, but also to flush the latrines and service buildings such as that. So highly organized, at least in its initial phases. And very self-sustaining, of course. We have just touched on this idea of civilians living nearby, Francis. Can you tell us a bit more about the civilian population that that existed to the south of Housestead's Roman fort? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the fort isn't in isolation. It had a civilian settlement, not just to the south, but to the east and the west, as been seen at Housestead and quite a few other sites where geophysical surveys have been done. There's a little bit of a debate over what we call this settlement. One name that has been used for quite a while is been called Vicus, which would make the residents who live in that area the Vicani. And we actually have an inscription from Housesteads, which is in our museum, building inscription that says it's set up by Julius by decree of the Vicani. So although possibly academic debates say we don't use a Vicus, it seems that our Housesteads civilian settlement residents did call themselves that. So outside the fort, as Paul says, there could be at least as many people living there as inside the fort. And it's also only about 16 miles to Corbridge, which is a large Roman town which is occupied the whole time. So although we're on the northern edge of the frontier, there's a lot of occupation in this area. It's a very densely occupied part of Britain at this period. Was there anything else further around Housesteads to the north? Scottish... (laughs) Can't call it Scottish, can we? we? What do we call the territory at this stage north of Housesteads beyond the wall? So technically, you know, to the Romans, it's outside of the empire, so it's barbaricum. But, you know, that's a little bit black and white. We know that there are forts north of the wall that we call outpost forts, so High Rochester, which are on the road up through into what is now Scotland and would have linked to the Antonine War when it was occupied for those 20 years. But, you know, it's not as clear-cut as the edge of the wall is the edge of the empire. Nobody could safely go beyond at House said so far there's no evidence for a civilian settlement linked specifically to the fort north of the wall, but there have been recent excavations at Benwell Fort in Tyneside, which shows actually there is evidence there of a civilian settlement just north of Hadrian's Wall. So perhaps if Housesteads wasn't on that precipice of the windsill, as Paul was describing, the settlement might have expanded a little bit further north. But it's all around the east, west and south, and in that settlement would have been, you know, a huge variety of people living and working. How did the use of the buildings outside the fort change over time, Paul? Yeah, that's a pretty tricky question, really. In truth, I mean, my opinion is that we don't really know because 
it is, as Francis has said, very extensive. And although there have been excavations in the 19th century, in the 20th century particularly, they've only been partial. And we, I think, know a lot more about the extent of the settlement outside the fort from geophysical survey, you know, this subsurface technique that reveals buried structures. So that indicates that there are many more buildings than, than have been exposed or that can be seen today. And that actually south of the fort, these buildings were enclosed by a protective ditch system, enclosing a large rectilinear area coming down the hill, within which were some pretty substantial buildings. And then there are also clear signs of organization of that settlement into land plots, which are carefully divided by boundaries. And that can be seen especially west of the fort, as Francis was indicating. So we have this settlement that wraps itself around the west, south and east sides of the fort. But in truth, we don't know a massive amount about how it changed over time. We do know from excavations in the 19th and 20th century that we believe that there were earlier buildings in the very valley bottom and that the buildings that you now see immediately outside of the fort are slightly later and probably survived slightly later as well. But what we do know is that from the general finds is that it seems that most of the external settlement had gone out of use by about AD 270. So fairly early, actually, when you think about it. So the life of them is at most 150 years. So we have a settlement that probably flourished mostly in the later second and early third century, after which we get a change in how Housesteads is organised. As Paul was saying, we've excavated some of the buildings. They've excavated around 20. Visitors today can see six kind of still upstanding in the ground. But we know that that's a really small number. And we don't really even know exactly what each building might have been used for. One's been identified as a possible inn because it's got evidence at the front section of slots and sills, which would allow shutters to be lifted in and out. So you could open up your inn when it was an accepted time to drink in a Roman day. And um, they're the things often you see in Pompeii with those street-facing buildings. One of the very famous buildings in this settlement, which I'm sure visitors will have heard about, is House Number 8, or as we would call it potentially, the Murder House, where, again, we don't really know the function of this house. Was it a shop, an inn? But two bodies were buried underneath the floor with a layer of clay put over them. One of them was a man with the tip of a knife in his ribs and the other one was maybe a female. Her, her remains weren't as well preserved. But we know that the Romans buried their dead outside of the settlements. So the cemeteries would have been outside of the extent of the civilian settlement. And so these people have been illegally buried and personally dug into the floor and layer of clay put over them. So we don't know what happened to them, but it doesn't sound very good for the two people. And it just shows kind of there's all sorts of things happening in that this settlement. You know, there's shops, there's taverns, there would have been the bathhouses and the workshops and lodgings. But it's not all a lovely life where people are making money out of the army. There would have been disputes as there would have been anywhere. So we've got a murder mystery on our hands as well with Housesteads, really. Yeah, Yeah. it's one of the activities the schools love to explore. I can imagine. I think it's fairly, fairly important to emphasise that it's a pretty unusual thing to find bodies buried inside a Roman settlement. You know, Roman law actually prohibited burial inside a settlement. So I think we could be fairly sure that this was the result of some nefarious act. 
way back in Roman times. The fact that the um, civilian settlement starts to sort of decline, does it also sort of decline slowly as a result of the decline of Roman influence in Britannia? So it's a tricky question. I wouldn't say decline in the influence of, you know, Rome and Britannia, but a lot of these civilian settlements outside of the forts do seem to decline at a similar stage if they've been excavated. And one thought is that the size of the garrisons manning these forts have been reduced. And the Roman army is a huge economic hub. So most of these people who've come to live in these civilian settlements, they're either dependents of the army or they're there to make money from the army. And if there's a lot less troops, there's less options to make money. So one thought is that there just wasn't the demand to support all these traders and you know merchants and craftsmen. So some of the people might have stayed in much smaller numbers, but perhaps Corbridge, which is the town 16 miles to the east, or Carlisle, where there's a town which is about 30 miles to the west, perhaps they could have supplied much of the needs of this smaller garrison. The evidence of Corbridge definitely seems to indicate a boom in activity and wealth in the 4th century. So it's not so much the decline in the Roman influence, it's just perhaps a smaller number of people, meaning their needs are smaller. Okay. How does the settlement outside Housesteads compare with the size of Housesteads itself? Is the civilian settlement actually bigger? Probably, yes. I think it's at, at least as extensive as the area covered by the fort. The fort is about two hectares. But from what we know now from geophysics, you know, the eventual extent of the civilian settlement was probably a little bit larger. But as I said earlier, it's been less systematically explored archaeologically. But it, it is at least as large, and it's very highly organised. You know, we know from the geophysical survey that there are lots of streets, the buildings are tightly packed, as Francis was saying, and it extends right down into the valley bottom, and also actually up the other side, because we know that there were temples on the slope coming back to the car park on Chapel Hill. So it's wrapped right around, it's wrapped <laughs> right around the outside of the fort, apart from the north side, and right down into the valley. So it's likely to, at its greatest extent, to have been a little bit larger than the fort itself. Now, did the military personnel live outside the fort perimeter or would they have always been stationed within its walls? You know, in a standard fort, all the soldiers had their place. As Paul said, there's an order to how a fort is built. The normal troops live in their barracks, the officers, the commanding officer has his house. However, there has been some speculation that some officers at Houses might have lived outside the walls of the fort. And one little piece of evidence that has been used here is a small badge in the shape of a spear, which is known to be kind of the symbol or the, the marker of a beneficiarius, who's a legionary soldier who's been assigned special duties. And it, it could be anything. We don't know what this man specifically was doing. It was found in one of the houses close to the south gate, but outside of the fort. So is that because he lived off base? Or is that because he lost it when he was visiting that house? It's unclear. But I find it quite interesting to note that if the Beneficiarius was a legionary soldier, which is what it's thought to be, he's not part of the normal garrison, who are the auxiliary troops. So perhaps he didn't have a set place within the fort. And so he did live off base. Paul's already talked about the unusual nature, potentially, of the different units based at Halstead. So maybe they didn't all always live in the, within the fort. At Bird Oswald, one of the English heritage forts, we know there was a small annex added to the fort to take an extra unit who came to be based at Bird Oswald and couldn't fit within the fort. So although at first glance the fort is ordered, everyone has their place, it's not always as simple in day-to-day life. Interesting. 
We've done some previous uh, episodes recently about 20th century military personnel leaving graffiti. So are there any inscriptions belonging to the soldiers that we can see today at Halsteads? Yeah, absolutely. Inscriptions, particularly the kind of official form, tend to take three types. They're funerary or relating to building or relating to religious activity. And there's around 60 of these three types from the site. We have graffiti, more informal, but that tends to be on objects, so pottery, because they're marking, right, kind of marking their wares. We don't have any of the inscribed tombstones in our care because the Halsteads collection is split, but we've got a lovely tombstone showing a male figure dressed in a tunic. And we have some really nice religious inscriptions with altars to various deities, some of the centurial stones that we talked about before. So a real range that tells us about different aspects of life. Did the soldiers interact with the locals? I suppose they did, didn't they? Well, yeah, they must have done. I mean, I think if if I start this off, and then probably Francis will be able to illuminate this through things that have been found, because it's probably most apparent through material culture and, and the things that people used and lost and left behind them and their discovery or absence from, from Housesteads and other sites. But in general terms, it's quite a challenging question and one that does exercise those involved in wall studies in general. But I think it's important to recognise that in general terms, the construction of the wall does represent a major dislocation in the previous lifestyle of people who lived in the region. And soldiers, of course, were the most obvious representatives of that change. Their purpose, no matter how we view the purpose of the wall itself, was actually to shield the work that was going on to the south to build the Roman province and to keep the Roman province effectively safe. Although in this area, the wall area, although there was quite dense settlement, it never reached the degree of Roman-style urban civilised life, if you want to put it that way, as it did further south. A Roman-style life did emerge in those two and three centuries of the Roman era, and it did develop in settlements along the frontier. Corbridge and Carlisle, as Francis has mentioned, were substantial town settlements. So although many locals must have been dislocated by the massive effects of the Roman frontier, there is some evidence that settlements that pre-existed were abandoned. And so this is probably evidence that local people are gradually signing up to the fact that things are different now. And certainly two centuries after the wall was built, surely there is a, a melding, a blending of the, the local garrisons and the people that live locally. Although there are, there are some signs that, at least initially, there was obviously conflict. And, and in the immediate, immediately before the construction of the wall, again from Vindolanda, we have a writing tablet which mentions disparagingly the locals as being called Britonculi or Little Britons. This is on one of those Vindolanda writing tablets. Right. So, yes, in most conquest situations, there is a fairly long period where there is conflict, but eventually I think there would be quite considerable interaction with the local population. And by the end of the Roman period, I don't think people would have recognised anything that happened two or three centuries earlier. What about the evidence of local goods and trade that have been discovered, Francis? I understand there are a few intriguing finds. Yeah, so, you know, this civilian settlement around the outside, it was there to provide for all the needs of the soldiers in the army. So whether that was making pottery, providing somewhere for the soldiers to go and spend their wages, but 
that's the case at every civilian settlement around the outside of a fort. But we've got a couple of kind of very unique houseteads aspects. And objects in Jet and Shale are found all along Hadrian's Wall and within the northern frontier. Most of it comes from Whitby, although there is a source of shale up in Scotland. And at houseteads, there's a real kind of focus on these types of objects. There's a larger than usual amount of them. And some of them are very high quality, specifically the fingerings. So the traders in Jeff and Shale were definitely making money out of the market at Housesteads, whether that's just one local worker who's or trader who's bringing it here and looked out, or was it that there was a real interest in Jet which brought the maker to Housesteads? We're not sure. You know, it's a chicken and egg, isn't it? Is Jet popular because somebody likes it, or is Jet popular because that's what's available? But Jet's one of the beautiful things we have in the collection. It's black and shiny. It would have looked lovely. And also, really interestingly, and a bit naughty, really, we know that somebody in the fort was making counterfeit coins. Really? Yeah. So they found two moulds for producing fake denarii. So denarii or a denarius is a silver coin uh, that's used for 200 plus years in the Roman economy. And the two moulds date from the early third century. And someone has studied all the coins from the site and looked at the coins and found which ones are fake and done kind of extrapolations and we know there was a slight issue with accessing coin in the early third century but the suggestions have been that around 30 percent of the coinage at housesteads in this early third century the severum period was counterfeit so you've got to think was it being accepted as normal coinage because if you can buy something with a coin then it's got value hasn't it or the forgers were just very good at their job and no one could tell they were fakes Yes, very interesting. Who would have been policing that, I wonder? <laughs> well, exactly. It was, you know, it was a, a high-level crime because you were defacing both the Roman emperor and defrauding the empire. So I imagine if you were caught counterfeiting coins, it would have been a capital punishment. But who knows? It's another mystery, along with the uh, yeah. murder in, in the house under the floorboards, isn't it? Exactly. Very interesting. Well, let's talk a bit further about soldier life and what they would have got up to. Some people might wonder if Roman fort soldiers had much to do on the outermost edge of Britannia. So what would soldiers have done, Paul? Well, where do I start, really? We've seen how the Roman army was very organised and their role on Hadrian's Wall was to defend the frontier and oversee legitimate comings and goings through the frontier because, as Francis says, there's always a buffer zone north of the wall where there's some Roman contact so this would have taken the form of a mixture of policing type duties and also of course periodically they would have to fight the people to the north were at least potentially and sometimes actually hostile so fighting did go on there are of course several documented occasions of major campaigns north of the wall for example during the expansion into scotland or what we know as scotland under antoninus pius in the middle of the second century ad and again under the Emperor Septimius Severus in the early 3rd century AD. So there are episodes where they're, you know, they're involved in serious and long-term fighting. But even when the frontier was more settled on Hadrian's Wall, there were these Roman outpost forts to the north of it, with which connections had to be maintained, and that would have involved patrol and supply work. So in order to maintain the frontier effectively, fairly frequent patrolling both along the wall and to the north of it in a broad zone would have been required simply to know what was going on and to gather intelligence and just to keep abreast of the local population. Soldiers also, of course, required constant drilling and training so that, that they maintained fitness 
uh, and fighting effectiveness. This was to do both with handling their personal weapons and also the ability to respond quickly in maneuvering as heavily armed cohesive units of various sizes in both defensive and offensive actions. In other words, you had to learn how to stay in formation and fight as a unit, which was very important. And that did require, you know, a lot of effort and a lot of drill. Then soldiers were also specialists of various kinds. And although Roman supply networks were highly organized, soldiers themselves were often skilled specialists in various trades and professions. You know, they were builders, carpenters, tailors, medics, etc. And sometimes, of course, they had to adapt and be self-sufficient. And I think Francis will probably say a little bit more about this in a minute. There's also evidence that military units, as I've intimated earlier, were often divided into smaller parts for detached duties. So a part of the garrison at Housesteads might go to fight on a campaign somewhere, leaving a smaller unit in garrison duty, a temporary or a permanent fort base. Or it might go to assist in a major building task somewhere else. Smaller numbers might go on escort or ceremonial duties for important officials and visitors, and specialists might be sent on individual tasks or to act as messengers. Then, of course, there's the mundane. Soldiers had to carefully look after all of their equipment. And remember, this equipment is made of materials like iron and steel and leather. And so in cold, wet and muddy conditions, there is a constant cleaning and service task to keep their equipment free from dirt and rust. I can't emphasize how much work that would have taken, for instance, for a mail court to keep it in good condition. They also mainly prepared and cooked all their own food daily. They were organized in small groups, usually of eight men, living in the same accommodation. And they would either have a nominated cook or they would take turns to prepare and cook their food daily. And at Housesteads, you can still see the foundation, some of the ovens that they used uh, to cook their own food. Finally, I'll mention probably an unpopular activity, which was tax collection. Taxes were then, as they are today, universal and absolutely essential to maintain the army and the imperial administration of the whole empire. And so soldiers were intimately and closely involved in supporting the collection of taxes by specialist civilian officials, uh, both in money payments or later on in payments in kind from the local population. So I think from that little brief pen picture, you can see that soldiers had lots of things to do and I don't suppose they had a massive amount of spare time. Now, you cued Francis to talk about some of the aspects of skills that would be needed beyond fighting and patrolling. And how important was it to have extracurricular skills, shall we say, Francis, if you're a soldier? It was hugely important. We know that, as Paul said, possibly a lot of your time as a soldier wasn't spent fighting. But also it was very important for the Roman army to be as self-sufficient as possible. So if you're out on a march, or even if, you know, it's just daily life in the fort, the army's going to want to be able to rely that you can fix something if it breaks. So it might be that one person is either officially or unofficially nominated as the armourer, or someone who can fix leather straps, etc, etc. Because you want to be able to kind of maintain your equipment without always having to purchase new. The soldiers would have been billed for their equipment as part of their pay, so they're going to want to keep it in a good condition as well and uh, keep it repaired. Evidence from one small excavation in the northeast corner of the fort discovered 
a concentration of scabbard runners and chapes, so bits from the metal parts from the scabbard where the swords were kept. And one thought was that this was a dump of material that came from an armourer's workshop and it was waiting to be repaired and put back in. Or secondly, that this material being pulled together for recycling. And I think that's a really key point. The Romans were really good at recycling. One of the reasons that we don't always have all the evidence we want for Roman life is that they've often melted it back down again (laughs) or used it for something else. Now, materials were really expensive and often much more expensive than the labour or time used to create something. And particularly at the edge of the empire, if you're on the end of a supply chain, you need to hold on to those resources so that anything that could be reused or repurposed would be. So this little collection of scabbard runners and shapes is a real insight into that potential life cycle of objects and how the army had to try and maintain things without always relying on external sources. You mentioned, obviously, this idea of recycling versus buying new. But was there any evidence then related to that of people having luxuries or was it quite a basic existence there? Well, I suppose it depends on your context, doesn't it? I imagine a high class family living in Rome might have thought that even the commanding officer and his family who lived in extremely luxurious settings compared to the soldiers were actually, you know, slumming it. But, you know, the commanding officer had underfloor heating and painted wall plaster. He would have been able to bring his family and many of his home comforts. We've got some beautiful glassware surviving from that part of the site. We also have quite a large number of intaglios, which are the small gemstones that set into fingerings. They're carved and they are would have been expensive purchases. A small sample from one specific excavation showed that actually there's a higher than usual number of silver items, such as earrings and fingerings. So there was money and there were luxuries around at Housesteads, although most of the kind of bottom layer soldiers might not have been able to access all of them. What about healthcare and waste management? So the Romans are ahead of particularly the Britons who they invaded in terms of healthcare and waste management. They borrowed a lot of their ideas from the Greeks. And at Housesteads, one of the buildings that's not usual, and we don't see at the other forts on Hadrian's Wall, has been something that's been identified as a hospital. And we have objects relating to medicine, such as spoons and tweezers or probes, as well as some lovely palettes for mixing things. And we have a tombstone for one specific man called Anicius Ingenus, who's a medicus of the first cohort of Tungrians. So his job, he's a soldier, but he's a, a medical officer based at Halsteads. And so we know that the Romans did understand a fair bit about healthcare and about medicine. They understood about fresh water and fresh air. They did have some unusual ideas, as you can imagine. But it was possibly more advanced than we might give them credit for. And yet another kind of very famous thing at houses and that school groups love are the toilets. But it's not just the toilets that to do with waste management, it's the drainage systems as well. The Romans had drains everywhere. Anyone visiting a Roman fort or any Roman site will have to be really beware of lots of trip hazards, which are usually the drains from the, the Romans left. And they understood the concept of having of taking this away because it you know it wasn't healthy to have the waste hanging around. But the toilets, people love the toilets at Househeads because they're so well preserved, but they could seat a large number of people. So the, the children think, oh, it's so funny, isn't it? You're having to sit next to everyone to, you know, do your business. But if you actually look at the architecture of the toilets, the toilets are in the southeast corner of the fort. So they're perfectly positioned to make use of the gravity. They're flushed through by water draining down 
the groundwater coming through the fort with uh, it's collected in tanks and then the drain underneath because they're kind of drop toilets again is sloping so it's a real masterpiece in architecture in keeping that waste moving unfortunately it's keeping the waste moving into this civilian settlement outside right (laughs) so not particularly nice okay very interesting what about religious beliefs at the time? We've covered in previous podcasts uh, that the Romans had quite varied beliefs and were quite accepting of different cultures from within the Roman Empire. So what did people worship at Halsteads particularly? Well, Paul's already mentioned that we know where some of the temples were. So Chapel Hill, which is to the south of the fort, and you'll see as you come up over the start of the valley at the bottom of the hill coming up to the fort. But The Romans, like you said, had a huge number of deities. They were a polytheistic society and mostly kind of tolerant of other religions. There's a huge amount of merging and hybridization of gods and goddesses with Roman deities being linked with local ones. And at Househeads, we've got 32 altars or religious inscriptions and they range from all of the different deities. So there's the classical ones that have come direct from Rome. So Jupiter or the divinities of the emperor. We've got Eastern gods, so Mithras, who's the ancient Persian god of truth and light. So we have a temple specific to Mithras um, that's been found. And then we have quite local ones. So the Genius Loki or the Genius of the Garrison. So that's Genius means spirit. So spirit of the place is Loki or spirit of the Garrison. So that's a specific deity. And then we have combinations of deities which are mixed up. So Mars is very much a, a Roman god. But there's altars to Mars Thinscus. And Thinscus is a Germanic or a Celtic god and has been linked to Mars here. And Mars seems to get linked to a lot of gods when you look at other sites as well. So it's a real melting pot of different beliefs, most of whom seem to have been accepted. And they would have worshipped in temples, which are usually on the edge of the site, as Paul's mentioned. But also houses might have had their own small shrines. And actually one of the houses in the civilian settlement they found a small shrine in the backyard and in there was the relief of the geniculati which is in our museum and you can go and see it and the geniculati so were the hooded gods we think they're celtic deities associated with prosperity and fertility and that shows that worship could be private as well as public right so you could be gathering together at a temple or you could be praying on your own in your own house exactly what about the Tungrian soldiers from modern-day Belgium? Did they have a particular set of deities that they prayed to, Paul? Well, all of the above, really. I think one of the things that Francis mentioned is that we know a lot about these from the altars that were dedicated and left behind. And quite a number of them are frequently dedicated to a particular god by the commanding officer of the unit. And that there are several commanders of the first cohort of Tungrians that are commemorated on these altars and they mention all of the gods that have just been talked about you know so you have mars and jupiter you sometimes have heroes like hercules there's the local gods they don't have their particular gods but they often have these fusion gods between those that they brought with them gods and goddesses from their former homeland with classical roman gods One of the, particularly the exceptions to that, is that these two Germanic units that I mentioned, the Frisians and this numerous Nordifridi from the same area in the Netherlands, these specifically seem to have mentioned this this fusion of gods that 
Francis mentioned, which is Mars and Thinxus. And then also a series of goddesses, of which there are four, called the Alasergi. And they are also goddesses associated with war and victory. And on two particular altars, the names of these four goddesses are mentioned, and they have distinctly un-Roman names. They are Beda, Bordihilia, Fimilina, and Friagabis. So these are certainly gods that have been imported and particular to these two Germanic units. But in general terms, what Francis said is absolutely right, that you get a fusion of religion. The Romans didn't object to religious practice, providing it didn't interfere in the politics of the empire. Provided it didn't do that, then they were both tolerant and they embraced gods from all over the place. Is there any evidence of Christianity at Halsteads? Possibly inside the fort, there is a, a fragment of a late Roman building near the northern wall, which some believe, because of its shape, it has an upsidal end, which is typical of late Roman Christian churches. But I'm not sure that the evidence for that is widely or at least totally accepted. But I don't know if there's anything in the, the finds from the fort that might suggest that. You do come across it in forts from time to time, certainly. But I'm not sure about the situation that Housesteads, maybe Francis does. No, at Housesteads, we don't have anything within the collections um, suggests Christianity. We do at some of the other sites, so Chester's and um, potentially at Corbridge as well. But Housesteads, it's not been found. doesn't mean it wasn't there. just means it hasn't survived through to us. Another thing, we've talked in a previous podcast about magic and superstition in the Roman Empire. How important were these as adjuncts to basic medicine and the worship of the gods? They were all intertwined. Religion and superstition and belief were part of everyday life. So it wasn't just, you know, setting up a large altar or having your shrine in your house. You might choose to wear jets. We've talked about jet. It looks beautiful as a hair pin or as a ring, but it also has magical properties. The Romans thought it helped to ward off the evil eye. And at Housesteads, we have a lithomarge bead and an amber bead, both materials also the Romans thought had magical and protective properties. So you might inscribe a phallic symbol on your doorway or in, you know, somewhere to, again, ward off the evil eye or bring you strength. So everything is intertwined. It's, it's not quite the kind of division between medicine and religion and science that we have today. Well, we're nearly at an end about our discussion about Housesteads, but how successful was Housesteads as one of the 16 forts along Hadrian's Wall? What do you think, Paul? Uh, that's a really difficult question, and it's pretty impossible for us to gauge, really. I mean, I suppose that at a most basic level, the frontier survived for 270 years. So as an entity, it surely must have been successful. But in terms of housesteads, it's really hard to say. But what we can say is that it was intensively used. It was frequently adapted and changed for the whole of its 270-year use by the army and its inhabitants. And there's evidence of construction of substantial buildings actually well into the 4th century. And clear signs that the garrison remained the same through the 3rd and 4th centuries. So the decline and apparent abandonment of most of the external buildings by the 270s does indicate a change in how the whole place functioned. What that was, we're not clear about, as we've said earlier. But there seems to possibly have been a greater focus on life lived within the fort walls, perhaps. But it is interesting that, for instance, a large, a huge store building was built 
at the end of the third century of the most magnificent stone masonry. And a new baths was built probably in the middle of the fourth century inside the fort. So it looks like that life does continue with a measure of success, if that's the way we want to, to talk about it, right until the very end of the Roman period. And we, we have, you know, material evidence in the terms of pottery finds from, from within the fort, particularly the really carefully excavated northeastern part, that they continued to defend and adapt the defences uh, of the fort right until AD 400-ish or thereabouts. So I would say that if I were to put my hand on my heart and say how successful was it as a fairly crude question, then yes, it was a successful place that fulfilled its function for a very long period. So it wasn't, in some respects, abandoned. There's no exact cutoff, is there? Well, this is one of the most difficult questions in wall studies. And, and we know from some places, actually, that life did continue beyond the withdrawal of Roman troops or Roman field, the field army anyway, in the early 5th century. We know that from Bird Oswald is a really good example of that, you know, just a little further west along the wall. And there is some evidence from housesteads, but it's very difficult to interpret. Again, it comes from this northeastern part of the fort, from a dig there that took place in the 70s and 80s, but also from finds more generally. First of all, it's probably true to say that there's an absence or a scarcity of late Roman coinage to help us date these latest traces of occupation. But on the other hand, there's fairly reasonable amounts of late Roman pottery from 370 thereabouts in pretty good amounts. And there are very detailed and frequent alterations of the defences and barracks in the late Roman period at Housesteads. So it is thought likely that there's occupation in some form may have continued right to the end of the 4th century and perhaps into the early 5th century. But it's also known from these excavations that overlying both the the ruins, or at least the semi-ruins of some of the Roman barrack blocks, but also built into the streets between these former barrack blocks, there are faint traces of more haphazard structures that aren't laid out in the same systematic form. Some of them are curvilinear or semi-round. So it's possible that some form of occupation actually carried on beyond the departure of the formal Roman garrison, or perhaps there was just a slight hiatus and some other people came to live at Housesteads. But we really need more excavation and more detailed work to be able to properly understand that. But I don't think it was simply abandoned. I think there's enough evidence to suggest that some form of life carried on, even if it was intermittently after the end of the withdrawal of Roman troops from Britain. I think if I was um, a local at that time and the properties were still in fairly good condition, I might want to make use of it myself with my family and my sheep and whatever. So I suppose that is a, a potential scenario. As you've intimated, Paul, there's probably a bit more to learn about life at Halstead's Roman forts. Um, I guess both of you would agree with that, really. There needs to be more digging to find out more information. Yeah, and I, th and I think even before we do more excavations, we could do with more geophysical survey. We haven't really found the edges of that extramural settlement. Much of our evidence is from aerial photography. So it'd be great to get a broader understanding of what's going on around, you know, the edge. And I'd love as well to have more study on the collections. 
the collections are split between multiple museums and organisations just because of the history of ownership and excavation at Halstead. So there's never really been a full overarching study. We look after some material, another museum has other material. And so actually looking at the material as a whole would really help us understand better this fascinating fort. I agree. I mean, as, as a former landscape archaeologist, and bearing in mind the amazing landscape survey that was done of Housesteads in the, in the 1980s, and what that revealed, there is a lot we can find out by not even breaking the ground. Geophysical survey has been done, but there is certainly room for more. I would say that my particular interest going forward would be in what's outside the fort. I mean, the fort has had a lot of attention, and we know far more about the fort, I think, than we do about the surrounding settlement. So that's where my interest would be most piqued. That's where the interesting stuff's going on, you know, where people are trying to make money, they're trying to defraud people with coins, they're living their life. Yeah, you know, they're living a life next to the army, but not necessarily controlled by the army. It's where the variety is happening, where there's really interesting interactions between the army and the British. And some of the traders could have come from the continent bringing their wares. Well, um, we hope there'll be some more geophysical surveys and then eventually some excavations, which might reveal some more finds, which, of course, we can then get together and talk about again once more. Yeah. Fantastic. Love to. (laughs) You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll discover the varied roles of grand country houses and estates during the Second World War. At one time, the family, the Grant Daltons, were invited to an at-home sherry reception in the drawing room. They were invited by General Percival, which must have been very strange as it was their own home that they were being invited to. Thanks for listening. See you next time.